the text I shall like to call your attention to this morning uh, is Acts 7, 54 to 60. We will be wrapping up our exposition of chapter 7. Um, Stephen has done a supreme job of proclaiming to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, Israel's history and Israel's fallacies and idolatries and all of those things that were riddled throughout all of their history. Uh, so far, probably next to the Sermon on the Mount, I would say that this is probably my next favorite sermon in all of Scripture. It's just been an amazing, amazing sermon, amazing speech. Uh, so today we will be examining 754 to 60. We will essentially be looking at how the Sanhedrin responded to Stephen's fiery speech. Uh, before doing so, I'd like to quickly go back through uh, some of the things that Stephen called his listeners uh, towards the end of his sermon, or at the end of his sermon. I brought these things to your attention two weeks ago. Last week I was uh, took a little staycation and hung out with my family, and it was just really beautiful. And I did come and, and worship with you guys and, and listen to uh, Colby preach God's Word, and thought that was a, a really excellent sermon. And God ministered to me during that time. It was really neat to see how sufferings and bruising and those things play right into our great need of Christ, and so richly blessed by being with you guys last week. But I'd like to just mention briefly some of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and these are the things that Stephen basically called the Sanhedrin. You might remember that he called them stiff-necked. Stiff-necked means to be obstinate or pig-headed, self-willed, self-reliant, unyielding. Um, Stephen called them uncircumcised in heart which is to be unchanged, unregenerate, faithless, and ultimately apart from God, apart from God and apart from His, or disconnected outside of His covenant. Uh, Stephen called them uncircumcised in ear, which is, essentially means to be unwilling to listen to the truth, unwilling to receive the truth. Uh, Stephen also said that they had betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Uh, that is what they had done. They betrayed him and uh, drug him before Pilate, before men, and he was crucified and killed these men. Uh, the blood was essentially on their hands, so to speak. And lastly, Stephen said that they did not keep the law uh, which had been entrusted to them by angels. Um, very interesting rebuke, calls them all of these things. Uh, and you may remember, too, if you were with us several weeks ago or a couple of weeks ago, uh, that ultimately Stephen's hearers were left with uh, two options, two choices. Number one, they could repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, receive Him as their only hope for deliverance uh, from breaking God's law, or they could reject Stephen's message, the truth, the gospel, and continue in their idolatry, worshiping the land of Israel, worshiping the temple, uh, worshiping God's promises rather than the promiser. They could uh, reject all of that. They could 
remain in their idolatry. They could remain in their opposition to God, uh, which is something that Stephen said they were doing, and so did the Apostle Peter. And ultimately, they could continue down the path of destruction. Let's look at the rest of the storyline, the narrative, the text, and we'll close out uh, together chapter 7. I'll read the text, pray, and then we'll examine and apply it together. 754 to 60. Now when they heard these things, that's the Sanhedrin, when they heard Stephen say his entire sermon and these things that were on the end, calling them these things. Now when they heard these things, they were thrilled, stoked, pumped. No, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, look at this contrast, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Father, help us in this very moment uh, to focus on you, Lord, to focus on your word, to focus on this teaching, this sermon, how vital it is to our own lives and to our lives and to our own survival. Uh, Your word gives nourishment. Uh, It saves. It sanctifies changes us. And it would be easy for us during this moment to be captivated by the cares of this world, the things that we are experiencing now, the troubles, the tribulations, even the joys. And so, Father, help us, cause us to gently listen and observe, to be in your presence, Lord. Ultimately, Father, we cry out that we would be able to understand the main driving point behind the study of Stephen's sermon and life and ministry. Make that so apparently clear to us today that none would miss the point. Drive it home, Lord. We pray these things in the matchless, mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right, friends, let's begin with 54. We'll begin to look at each verse or verses at a time and see what God has for us. 54 says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. 
The Sanhedrin responded to Stephen's words much like they did to Peter's words back in Acts chapter 5. Some of you may have been with us then, most of you were, and remember us going through that passage together. And After warning the apostles, this is the Sanhedrin, after the Sanhedrin warned the apostles to stop teaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the apostles said this, Acts 5, 2, 9, uh, 529, and we'll go through to 533. They said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How did the Sanhedrin respond to Peter's words? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The Sanhedrin became enraged. Luke used the same Greek word in 533 and in our text 754 to describe this emotion Enraged, and I said it before when we were teaching through five, but enraged is translated uh, diaprio, which means to be filled with rage, filled with fury, filled with uncontrollable anger. Now, the chief difference between what happened in 533 and in our text, 754, is that there was a Pharisee, a very popular and well-known Pharisee present that day, He was at the Hall of Hewn Stone, and we see that back in 533. And what he did was he, as they were enraged and wanting to kill, he restrained the Sanhedrin. He spoke and warned them to continue to watch the apostles' ministry. Do not take decisive action right now. If this is of God, you won't be able to stop it. If it's not of God, it'll fizzle out on its own. And so he intervened back in 533, and the Sanhedrin obeyed him. Now, Gamaliel was either not present during Stephen's trial, or he was caught up in the fury because no attempt to chill things out, no attempt to cool things down was made by him in our text. Luke goes on to say that they ground their teeth at Stephen. When I read this, I had a vision in my mind's eye and an image of, of wolves grinding their teeth uh, you know, at their prey or just before they're about to pounce on their prey. And the Bible actually paints that sort of image here. These men had become like ravenous, snarling wolves at the words of Stephen. Now, I recently watched a movie called The Grey, the first movie I've watched in a long time where the ending really stunk because the hero gets killed. I don't know if you've seen it. Be careful. It's got about 300 F-bombs in it and a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, at the end of the movie, there's this great showdown. All of these plane crash victims have been pursued by these ravenous wolves, and one by one, they've been eaten and killed. And, And in the end, Liam Neeson's the only guy left. And 
you know, he's, he's kind of in this little area and there's all these wolves around him snarling and growling and licking their chops and they're ready to go and he like breaks a bottle and he's like ready to fight. And I think the, this is the image that we get here in a way, that you've got the Sanhedrin, these 70 some odd religious men, the highest ranking religious men in the whole community, in the whole area, in the whole province, and, and they're around him like these snarling, you know, bloodthirsty wolves. And you've got Stephen in the middle. That's the kind of imagery our text paints with this gnashing or grinding of, of teeth. The Bible uses this imagery in several other passages. King David said, Psalm 35, 16, like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Psalm 37, 12 says, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Snarling, ravenous wolf action towards the righteous. Job 16, 9, Job said, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Job was speaking about God. His tribulation had caused him to just get on that precipice of cursing God. I mean, the man had lost it all. He believed for a season there that it was God who was tormenting. And in a way, God was. He thought of the Lord as this gnashing, ravenous wolf against his life. Look at 55. You can kind of see that now playing out. You've got this guy in the middle and all of these men who are gnashing at him. And one commentator said they were actually biting him. I really couldn't find that there. I guess saying that they were gnashing at him, he interpreted that to mean that they were biting at him. I I don't know. But he's surrounded by these men. They're like wolves, and his words have just incited them to beyond rage and anger. Now, in 55, Luke immediately contrasts the Sanhedrin with Stephen. I love how the authors of Scripture do these things. While the religious leaders were snarling and grinding their teeth, Stephen is the middle and he is composed. Look at 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Luke tells us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. This is the opposite of what the religious leaders were filled with. They were filled with rage and fury. Being full of the Holy Spirit gave Stephen the unique ability to call these men what they rightfully were but to do it in a way that was non-combative and peaceful. This is known as speaking the truth in love. Now, all Christians are capable of speaking the truth. They say things about Jesus and the gospel. They can talk about creation. They can talk about the fall of man. They can talk about Noah's Ark and Sodom and Gomorrah, all of these things, etc., etc. But the absolute key to all of this speaking, to talking, is being full of the Holy Spirit. 
We must be full of the Holy Spirit when we present God's truth to those around us. Being filled and full of the Holy Spirit grants us divine composure when our enemies align themselves against us, is what we're seeing here as well. Without the Spirit's fullness, filling, presence, and leading, we are susceptible to anger, susceptible to malice, defensiveness, competitiveness, and lack of patience. Without the filling presence and leading of the Holy Spirit, we simply cannot engage others with the truth in a manner that maintains God's honor, integrity, and character. Quite frankly, we make a mess of things. We make things worse so often. Now, engaging others with the truth through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, through the presence and leading of the Holy Spirit, does not always ensure that our listeners will respond the way that we want them to respond. Such is the case with Stephen. But we must remember what our ultimate goal is. Our ultimate goal is not to merely speak the truth to those around us. Our ultimate goal is to magnify exalt and glorify God. The magnification, exaltation, and glorification of God are the ultimate goal of all preaching, teaching, evangelism, and conversation. All that we say and do is for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever it is, do it all for the glory of God. God. That leads us to this. Who then needs to be first in our minds when we engage others with the truth? Is it the others? No, it is God. Why? Because He is always to be our first concern, because He is our ultimate goal. He is our ultimate goal in this life. Our ultimate goal, rather, is in this life to honor, to exalt, and to glorify God. That's a bit of a perplexing thing. How often do we enter into conversation with others or we begin to proclaim the gospel and God isn't the first person that we think about. It's just that individual in front of us. If we allow God to govern our thoughts, minds, and attention before we engage. We're going to do, I would say, through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, a much better job of glorifying Him in our conversation, in our preaching, in our words. But I think that God is so often the last person that we think about. We're so ultimately consumed with speaking words to this individual that we don't first consider God. How might he want me to speak? Lord, how might I speak in a way that glorifies thee? It would certainly save us a lot of trouble and heartache if we were to first consider that we ultimately have an audience of one, God Almighty. And his glory, his exaltation, all of those things are our primary goal in life. He is the one that we want to magnify. 
When God's glory is our target, he shoots arrows through the hearts of lost men and women when we proclaim the gospel. God does his redeeming work. He does. God carries out his objectives. We honor him. We glorify him. We lift him up. And ultimately, the words that we speak, those great gospel words, are left in his hands. And he can apply them the way that he desires to apply them. It's so critical that we get this. And this is essentially who Stephen is and what he's doing. His concern is to magnify God, to glorify God, to exalt God in his preaching. Does he want to win his listeners to Christ? Absolutely. But first and foremost, the glory of God is his most earnest desire. Who needs to be in our minds when we engage others with the truth? Is it the others? Yes, to some degree, but first and foremost, God Almighty. Look at the rest of 55. While full of the Holy Spirit, it says Stephen did what? He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is incredibly interesting. Stephen saw a, I would say, an amazing vision. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What was the purpose for Stephen's vision? And why did he see Jesus there, present, standing? I have a handful of reasons uh, that uh, might bring some clarity to this whole vision and experience in Jesus standing and, and these things. And I'd like, to, I'd like to put them out for you. One thing that you must understand is that in Jewish culture, it was customary for judges to stand when rendering a verdict. Okay, as Stephen gazed into heaven, he saw a vision of Jesus standing up from his throne to give a verdict, just as a judge would stand up from his bench to give a verdict. Now this obviously begs the question, is Jesus a type of judge? The answer is yes. John 5, 27 says so clearly and profoundly that God has given Jesus what authority to execute judgment because he is the what son of man God the father gave his son Jesus Christ the unique title of judge over all in Stephen's vision we see Jesus the judge over all standing to render his verdict what was Jesus's Verdict, the judge overall. Isaiah 54, 17 answers this very nicely. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is fashioned against the righteous shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And then he says this, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Those who serve the Lord are vindicated by the Lord before all their enemies and persecutors. That is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. 
It says, no weapon fashioned against the righteous shall succeed. Romans 8, 33 and 39 and other passages seem to confirm this with the idea that we can never be separated from the love of God. Now we're all talking in spiritual terms here. Therefore, the Lord stood up from his throne to vindicate his servant. Jesus stood up and declared through his posture, my servant Stephen is innocent. Jesus also declared through his posture that Stephen's accusers and the Sanhedrin were guilty. Unbeknownst to them, they were the ones that were actually on trial and they were the ones that were actually found guilty. Jesus' posture declared it. Amen? King David wrote in Psalm 97, 17, I'm paraphrasing a bit, But it still means this. Who rises up for me against the wicked and who stands up for me against evildoers? He cries out. And then he says, it is the Lord who is my help. The Lord Jesus, the judge, he is the judge. He is the judge who rises up and declares that his servants are innocent. The Lord Jesus vindicates his servants. Isn't that marvelous? That when the enemies of Christ and of us align against us, we have a mediator, we have a judge in heaven who declares, sling your allegations, say what you will, they are in me, therefore they are innocent. They have broken not my laws. I vindicate them. How marvelous is this? I love how King David echoes that way back so amazing so truly amazing now the last reason why or and i'm certain there's far more than i could come up with i have a very futile limited mind some of you have greater minds than i do the last reason uh, jesus stood up was to welcome stephen Stephen knew that his life was about to end. He knew that the Sanhedrin was going to kill him. He knew that he was about to die for the sake of the gospel. He knew that he would soon be in the presence of his Lord. And at the hour of his great need, at the hour of darkness, when his enemies, those wolves, were about to devour him, He saw the Lord in all his radiant glory standing next to the Father waiting to receive him. Taking all of these reasons for this vision and Jesus standing together, combining them makes Stephen's vision a gracious gift from the Father. The father wanted Stephen to know that he approved of his speech, ministry, and life. God wanted Stephen to know that he knew that he was innocent and that his persecutors were the guilty ones. The father wanted Stephen to know that his son Jesus Christ was standing and waiting to receive him. The vision was meant to encourage 
and emboldened Stephen in his most difficult hour. And it gave Stephen the courage to share with his listeners this very vision. And as we will soon see, this testimony about his vision is the straw that broke the camel's back. It is the crack that caused the dam of the Sanhedrin's anger and fury to explode and spill over on him. Look at 56 and 57. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens open." and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Why did this statement cause the Sanhedrin, why did this testimony about his vision cause the Sanhedrin to react the way that they did? The better question might be, how did the Sanhedrin react to Jesus when he said nearly the same thing, a variation of this. When grilled about being the Son of God, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 57, I had this giant section, not a giant section, I had this particular section read today, and I'm going to reiterate a little bit of it. When grilled about being the Son of God, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 57, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. How did the Sanhedrin respond to Jesus' testimony, to his prophetic words? Matthew 26, 65-68. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment, men of the Sanhedrin? They answered, he deserves death. And then it says in 67, they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is that that struck you? Jesus declared before the Sanhedrin, that they would see him, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God. This meant that they would see him as the judge over all. That was the last straw for the Sanhedrin. Jesus' statement broke the dam of the Sanhedrin's anger and fury. They rushed him, they spit in his face, they started beating and mocking him, and a little later they took him to Pilate to be crucified. Jesus' testimony cost him his life. For a few days, that is. Stephen echoed the Lord's words. He declared that he saw Jesus in his glorified state as the judge over all. And when he testified to that, the Sanhedrin remembered Jesus' words and then exploded in rage and fury and violence and they screamed, No! And they covered their ears and they rushed at Stephen. Look at 58. says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. The text points out the fact that they seized him and took Stephen and drug him outside of the city gates, outside of the city walls. Why? To kill him. They did this according to their law. Leviticus 24.14 commands that criminals, whenever it's a capital case, whenever they commit blasphemy and are deserving of being stoned to death, they are to be taken outside of the camp or city gate and executed there. You cannot do it in the city limits. So the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, obeyed part of their law. Obviously, the whole thing was a farce, but to them, they were obeying what Leviticus 24.14 says. And on the other hand, the religious leaders did break Roman laws. When Rome conquered Israel, they stripped the nation of her governing authority. They stripped the religious leaders of their governing authority. Israel was not permitted on her own to try capital cases or to carry out death sentences. All capital cases had to be handed over to uh, the Roman governor's office. The Roman governor would then hold court and listen to the case and determine the prisoner's fate and then carry out the punishment. The only thing that the Jews could do was bring the alleged to the governor. All of this is so perfectly illustrated in the gospel account with Jesus, with the exception of the kangaroo nightly court, which was a complete farce. But they did bring charges and then bring him to the proper authority. We're seeing none of that with Stephen, none of it whatsoever. We see none of that in our passage, which makes Stephen's execution an illegal execution. And then it says, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is very bizarre here. It was customary for the witnesses to cast the first stones at the condemned. We see that taking place here. But it was never customary for the executioners to strip off their clothes. Normally, the guilty person was stripped before being put to death. But they didn't remove Stephen's clothes. Instead, the witnesses took off their clothes. They probably did this because it was hot outside. In any case, removing their clothes was an admittance of their own guilt. As I said, in an execution, only the guilty person or persons are stripped. Never the witnesses. Never the executioners. And I'd like to think that the reason why this happened was because the Lord turned the temperature up a little bit on that very moment, causing these men who were ferociously angry and filled with rage and all hot and bothered to begin to strip off their clothes before they did this dastardly deed. In any case, they were admitting their own guilt by stripping. Also, according to their law... If a witness was caught bearing false testimony against his brother, the case would be flipped against him and he would receive the punishment of the crime. Deuteronomy 19, 16, 19. Which means that these 
false witnesses, because that's what they were. If you go back through chapter 5, chapter 6 more particularly, you see that they set up false witnesses against Stephen. They coached these people into speaking lies about him and these falsities about him. These, men's, these men were the ones that were guilty. They were bringing false allegations against Stephen. And to be found guilty of that, they would be the ones that would be stoned to death. And I believe this is the reason why the Sanhedrin chose not the path of the law. Because if they would have taken the case before Pilate, it would have been thrown out. And they would have been judged. Pilate didn't even want to execute Jesus. They didn't have a strong case against Jesus, let alone would they have a strong case against this man Stephen. I believe that's why they didn't take it to Rome and take it to the governor's office. They took him right from the Hall of Hewn Stone, right outside the city gates, stripped and began to hurl stones at him. Oh, these men were guilty, and Jesus knew it, and it was hot out. And they admitted to their guilt by taking off their outer garments which is exactly what would have happened with the condemned. Isn't Scripture amazing how these things happen? Wow. I think as Stephen was watching this play out, he knew there's another sign of their own guilt. Amazing. Text says also that they laid their garments at the feet of young Saul, man named Saul. This is the first mention of Saul in the scripture. Saul was that young protege of the rabbin Gamaliel. He was present at Stephen's execution. He was there. And I suspect that he was present at his trial and he, that he was also one of the men who drug him to the synagogue, to the Hall of Hewn Stone in the first place because he was one of those synagogue men who just could not debate Stephen worth beans. Filled with pride and fury, they cooked up that whole scandal and scheme to get him prosecuted and murdered. Saul was there. It would appear that Saul had gained a bit of popularity because the witnesses placed their clothes, their garments, at his feet. This act may have been a gesture of respect or something like that. We'll really begin to look at Saul and the coming weeks, so I'd like to save our examination of him for then. It's going to be great. Let's look at 59 to 60. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Uh, one of my commentators, Keener, wrote, According to Jewish regulations, a condemned criminal would be taken out to the edge of the city, stripped and thrown over a drop at least twice the man's height. The witnesses would be the first to hurl large stones on top of him, aiming for the chest till the victim died. So a stoning death looked more like a big rock 
burial or something of that nature. They would throw him down, and if the drop didn't do the job, break his neck, break his back, kill him or whatever it is, they would begin to hurl these big stones down aiming for his chest until he was no longer breathing. Now, it is doubtful that Stephen's execution was done according to these regulations, and these things are found in the Mishnah. We see that he was standing when the stones began to crash against his body. He wasn't laying down in a, at the bottom of a, a drop or anything like that. He was actually standing because the text says that he fell to his knees. Um, it would also appear that as soon as they went outside the city gates, the witnesses quickly stripped and then started picking up random stones and started hucking them at Stephen. Kind of like a, a dirt-clawed fight with the exception that Stephen wasn't throwing back and with the exception that they weren't throwing dirt clods. And as the stones began to impact his body, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now this is really beautiful because it shows that Stephen followed in the steps of his Lord in martyrdom. When Jesus, or while Jesus was dying on the cross... He cried out, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Stephen mimicked his Lord to some degree, but he called out to Jesus, who is the mediator rather than to the Father to receive his spirit. Stephen understood that the only way to the Father was through the Son. That is why he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knew that his Lord was standing and waiting for him because of his vision. And as the stones began to snuff out his life, he then fell to his knees and shouted, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. At a stoning, the condemned person was to confess his sin and pray, may my death atone for all my sins. But Stephen confessed not his own sin, but that of his false accuser. Here again we see how he mimicked the Lord in a way. In Luke 23, 34, while on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen traded or swapped Father with Lord and then begged the Lord not to hold his murder against his killers. How could he, at this moment, desire for his killers not to be held accountable for his murder. How could he cry out for mercy rather than for justice for them? The stones were crashing against his body and face and the blood was flowing and his sight was growing dim. And with his final breath he cried out, Do not hold this sin against them. How could he do this? How could he do something like this? My first inclination for myself is that's not what I would do. Stop him and kill him. Call down fire. I'm a wannabe son of thunder here. Come on. You're standing. You see me. Don't you see what's going on here? Can you do something about it? I'd like to continue to preach the gospel. This isn't right. This isn't just. No, he says, do not hold this sin against them. 
How could he do this? How could he say such a thing? Exactly. My thoughts exactly. I'll give you the answer. It's because of the love of Jesus. Only the love of Jesus can compel a person to love his enemies more than his own life. Only the love of Jesus can move a person to plead mercy for his killers. Love is what controlled Stephen. It was love, the love of Jesus, that compelled Stephen to preach the gospel. It was the love of Jesus that moved him to defend the faith. It was the love of Jesus that caused him, that compelled him, that moved him towards laying down his own life. It was the love of Jesus that caused him to plead for his killers. What a deep, tremendous, transformational love is the love of Jesus. It's by love that he could do what he did. And the very reason why I get defensive and do things that I shouldn't do at times like this, and boy, have I never experienced anything quite like that. It's not love that drives me. It's not a realization of the love of Christ and how deep and profound and wide and extraordinary His love is for me. It's quite marvelous how He responded. Only the love of Jesus can do such a thing. He mimicked his Lord's own words. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. Stephen said, do not hold this sin against them. They are the same. This man was deeply impacted and changed and transformed by the love of Christ. Only the love of Jesus can move someone like this. Lastly, Luke tells us that Stephen fell asleep. In the New Testament, whenever a believer passes away, it says that they fall asleep. Whenever a non-believer passes away, it says they die. MacArthur wrote, sleep is a lovely way to describe the death of a believer. It is painless and temporary and takes one from the experience of weariness, work, and consciousness of all the problems of life to the freshness of a new day. Stephen fell asleep. His body was placed in a tomb as a seed that would rise up on resurrection day to live again forever in the presence of the Lord, perfected, perfect. He fell asleep. In ending, I'd like to ask a simple question. What is the point to all of this? We have studied the character, faith, ministry, and speech of Stephen for many, many weeks. At this point, it would be very easy for us to desire to become like Stephen in so many ways. We have 
marveled at this amazing man of God and would be quite natural for us to want to be like him through all of the study and time. But I know that if Stephen were with us, he would call for us to look to someone else. Stephen would say, do not set your sights on me. Stephen would say, do not aim to be like me. If you do so, you have missed the point. I know Stephen would say, the point of my life and example is Jesus. Jesus is the point. Stephen wanted his life to point to Jesus, not to himself. The same can be said about the Apostle Paul and every other good godly man and woman in the Scriptures. The point is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. And how often do we become captivated with this individual or even somebody we know. And the next thing you know, we begin to aim our sights towards that. I want to be like that person. I want to be like that guy. I want to have the faith of Stephen. I want to look like him. I want to be like the Apostle Paul. You know, when I taught through the book of Colossians, by the time it was all said and done, I was striving to become like Paul. And if Paul would have been standing in front of me, he would have said, you've missed the point. Paul would say, I have failed all of those years of ministry if you desire to be like me. We live in a church age where every church is trying to be like the other church and every Christian is trying to be like all of these different characters in the Bible and all of these characters in the world and all of these characters in Hollywood and it is a sin. The point is Jesus always And I'm not verbally abusing you. I'm verbally abusing myself because I am a culprit. So easily led towards becoming and wanting and desiring to be something else. How often I miss the point. I I entertained 50 different applications for this entire series looking at Stephen. How to be a better apologist. How to do this. How to be more like Stephen. How to do this. And the Lord came to me and said, wrong, you've missed the point of my text. You are to be like me. Stephen points to me. Can you be a better apologist? Yeah. Can, can, are there things that we can learn from him? Of course. But for crying out loud, it's all. Jesus, that is the point. That is the point of every sermon. That is the point of every biblical teaching. That is the point of all these spiritual conversations. That is the point of our very existence, is Jesus. Amen? Do we get that? No. When believers began to argue over whom they followed, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. The apostle Paul rebuked them and said, is Christ divided? Was Christ or was 
Paul, rather, crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's words drip and ooze with sarcasm. Paul's point was, it's all about Jesus. You're following Jesus. When you follow me, you're following Jesus. When you see me, you see Jesus. When you listen to me, you hear Jesus. We all follow Jesus. He is the point. He is the point. When we set our sights and minds and hearts on other things, we fall dramatically short of where our focus is to be. When we receive Jesus as the main point of the scriptures and of all preaching, and as a result of that, we set our hearts and minds on him, we honor the great men and women of the Bible, and more importantly, we honor the Lord. May we as a church never get off track, especially as leaders, by following the servants rather than the Savior. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. May we strive together in the faith to become like Jesus in every way. Jesus is our target. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our example. And we must remember, when we fall, fail, when we come short of the glory of God at times because we've got these dreadful, this dreadful sin nature, just hamstrings and hampers us at times. May we remember that when we fail, that where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. May we rest in his grace. What is the point? It is Jesus. Lord, I pray that as a church that that very generic idea, that very simplistic point would not only resonate with us, that we would not only be a bunch of bobbleheads saying amen, that that truth, that simple truth would penetrate deep within, permeate our speech living lives, deeds, marriages, relationships. Christ, it's all about you. The very work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, O oh precious Jesus, is to sanctify us and to transform us into your image, Jesus. Not the image of Pastor Phil. That's an ugly one. Not the image of the Apostle Paul. Not the image of the deacon, Stephen, but the very image of Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we strive together, pursuing him and him alone. He is our target. He is our life. May we never cease from proclaiming him. May we never cease from glorifying him, exalting him lifting his name up in this community that so desperately needs him. Father, as we take communion together, Father, I pray that it would be a special time of remembering the point, 
Jesus. Remembering his finished work on the cross, that miracle. Remembering that the atonement, the price has been paid through his broken, battered body. That we are freed by sheer grace alone, by that great gift of faith that only a sovereign God can give to those he desires to give it to. We have experienced that gift. May we remember it as it was offered through that cross, through that sacrifice. May we take these elements in remembrance of the finished work of our glorious Lord and Savior that we may pause, remember, and as we walk out of here today, there isn't a thing that we need to earn, there isn't a thing that we need to do other than to follow Christ with simple childlike faith. Help us to ponder your magnificence, Lord Jesus, during this time of communion. And we pray all of these things in your name. The name of Christ, the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.